This podcast is supported by Evernorth Health Services. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Tonight on 360 in the air and on the ground, Israel ramps up its war on Hamas as the Biden administration weighs in on this dark question. Is Hamas not freeing the remaining young women at holes so they won't talk about being abused in captivity? Also tonight, the man who tried to overturn the election, he lost, is now warning that President Biden and not he is the real threat to democracy. That is a former top Republican warns we are, quote, sleepwalking into dictatorship if he wins a second term. Later, Harvard's leading expert on social media disinformation and how she says she was forced out for making trouble for Facebook founder and $500 million donor Mark Zuckerberg. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. We begin with a very full night of developments in and around Israel's war in Hamas. And a new focus today on allegations that rape was a central part of the atrocities Hamas committed to start the war. It's been a heavy day and night of Israeli airstrikes in Gaza. About 200 targets hit, according to military officials. Separately, new videos surfaced today on social media of Israeli forces using explosives to demolish a large building in central Gaza, housing the Hamas-run justice ministry and courthouses. Elsewhere, on the ground, meantime, our first evidence that the IDF is carrying out the plan it announced yesterday to launch operations in southern Gaza. Video geolocated by CNN showing Israeli troops in at least one tank operating in the south. And as the fighting there picks up, the humanitarian crisis grows for Gazans who now have few options, where to go, and very little to eat. A World Health Organization team visiting a hospital in Khan Yunis saying conditions there are, in their words, catastrophic and warning that intensified ground operations in the south will likely cut off thousands from health care. There's also new word tonight of a near-complete blackout of internet and phone service in Gaza. CNN's Ben Wiedemann reports on the desperation. Desperate times call for desperate measures. And in Gaza, if that means looting the local bakery destroyed overnight by an Israeli airstrike, so be it. Look at the people, says Ikram Arai. They're doing this out of hunger. It was the Baraka bakery. Baraka is Arabic for blessing. But now Gaza is under the curse of war. It was the last functioning bakery in Deir el-Bela. People's basic needs. Striking it is a kind of terrorism. Once the sun came up Monday, people of all ages descended upon the bakery. Taking away bags of flour, cooking oil, scraps of wood to use for cooking and heating, and just about anything else they could carry away. This man describes it in one word, chaos. The World Food Program's Abir Atefa warns the people of Gaza are reaching the breaking point. When you have civil order breaking down completely because people are becoming desperate, hopeless, hungry, by the moment, this is of course uh, bound to happen. 
and with Israeli ground forces now operating in southern Gaza, the hundreds of thousands who fled the north in search of safety are now, even more than before, in the line of fire. Gaza, after almost two months of war, has come to this. Ben Wiedemann joins us. How are humanitarian relief groups reacting to the Israeli moves in southern Gaza? All of them are extremely concerned about the situation, Anderson. The World Health Organization, Doctors Without Borders, the UN agency that looks after the Palestinians are deeply concerned that the Israelis are essentially pushing the hundreds of thousands of people into a small corner of Gaza where there's no infrastructure, there's no shelter, there's no food, there's no water, there's no medical care. Uh, all of the problems of Gaza are being compounded into a fairly small area. And in fact, Martin Griffiths, who's the chief UN relief officer, uh, came out with a statement this evening and said, every time we think things cannot get more apocalyptic in Gaza, they do. Anderson. And Weedman, thanks. The United Nations today held a special session called Hear Our Voices, aimed at raising awareness about sexual violence in wartime. As you might imagine, the allegations that Hamas carried out brutal and premeditated sexual assaults on October 7th took center stage. Allegations Hamas denies. That said, State Department spokesman Matthew Miller today said that he sees, quote, no reason at all to doubt those reports. He also cited as fact that it, quote, seems, unquote, that Hamas isn't turning over its remaining women hostages because it does not want them to talk about what they've gone through in captivity. He was asked to elaborate. Very sensitive you in my language. Matt, any evidence to suggest that that is what, what it is, or is it just... I want to be very sensitive in my language when talking about people that continue to be held hostage, that have uh, families on the outside. Um, I will, so I will, what I will say is we know Hamas has committed atrocities. We know they, uh, uh, hold on, they, they continue to hold women. They were going to release these women and then suddenly at the last point reneged on the deal and were never able to provide a credible reason why. Israeli police, along with the Civil Commission, have already gathered evidence of sexual assaults from eyewitness video as well as what the gunmen themselves recorded on October 7th. CNN's Bianca Goldrodriga has more, but first a warning, some of her report is especially tough to hear. The details are horrific. Listen to this Israeli paramedic whose rescue unit responded to the massacre at Kibbutz Beri. He did not want to be identified. While we're storming through those houses, one of the doors uh, I open, it's a bedroom. I see two girls, two teenagers, uh, I guess 13 or 14 years old. One is lying on the floor, one is lying on the bed. One on the floor, she's lying on her stomach. Her pants are pulled down towards her knees and there's a, a bullet wound on her, the backside of her neck near her head, and there's a puddle of blood around her, her head, and there's remains of, uh, of semen on the lower part of her back. A volunteer at the Shura IDF military base, where many of the victims of the massacre have been sent, testified at a UN event in Geneva last week, describing the evidence of sexual violence she saw on some of the bodies. Our team commanders saw several soldiers who were shot in the crotch in intimate areas in their vaginas, or they were shot in their breast. 
There seemed to be systematic genital mutilation of a group of victims. Despite all of that, the UN and its women's rights affiliates remained silent on the mounting specific allegations. Their response was, was really devastating, was heartbreaking for me. Professor Ruth Halpern Kadari is an international women's rights advocate and for 12 years helped lead the United Nations Committee on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. Neither of them acknowledged or recognized the existence, the fact that sexual violence was part of the Hamas massacre. And by not acknowledging this, by dismissing, by ignoring, they are in fact almost, I would say, legitimizing uh, uh, the, the existence of these atrocities. I asked a representative from UN Women about that. Her answer speaks for itself. Is there a reason, though, Sarah, that you can't specifically call out Hamas and the mounting evidence now over seven weeks that Israeli investigators have collected that we've shown our viewers about the atrocities they committed specifically on October 7th? Indeed. UN Women always supports impartial, independent investigations into any serious allegations of gender-based or sexual violence. And within the UN family, these investigations are led by the Office of the High Commissioner of Human Rights. Then, three days later, finally an acknowledgement from UN Women, a statement of their own. We unequivocally condemn the brutal attacks by Hamas on October 7th. We are alarmed by the numerous accounts of gender-based atrocities and sexual violence during those attacks. And over the weekend, even more accounts coming to light. The Sunday Times quoted a 39-year-old witness who attended the Nova Music Festival. I saw this beautiful woman with the face of an angel and eight or ten of the fighters beating and raping her. She was screaming, stop it already. I'm going to die anyway from what you were doing. Just kill me. When they finished, they were laughing, and the last one shot her in the head. A police commander leading Israel's investigation into sexual violence and crimes said, it's clear now that sexual crimes were part of the planning, and the purpose was to terrify and humiliate people. Being able to prove that the crimes were planned is critical in prosecuting such cases. Recall that the massacre actually took place in 22 locations at the same time. The same method in which these horrific atrocities were executed by the terrorists in separate locations, in different locations, all at the same time. This demonstrates a preconceived and premeditated plan. And that is why it does amount to crimes against humanity. Bianca Goldriga, CNN, New York. Oh, one of the women still being held hostage is 23-year-old Romy Gonin. She was at the music festival on October 7th. She and a close friend ran for their lives in hidden bushes. The whole time, Romy was on uh, her phone with her family. A colleague also at the festival picked them up and tried to drive off, but gunmen attacked and murdered Romy's two friends. Romy, her parents say, was shot in the hand. They say when she was taken, they could hear an attacker say, quote, she's alive, let's take her. Her phone was later traced to Gaza. Her mother, Mirev Leshem Gonen, joins us. Mirev, I know that the, the risk of assault facing female hostages in Gaza is one of the reasons why you are speaking out. Do you believe humanitarian groups have spoken out enough about the, the plight of female hostages, including Romy? I'm sorry to say that's not, that's not the, the situation. I feel that uh, 
the humanitarian organization, uh, the women organization around the world, social organization, uh, have not yet spoken enough on behalf of the women that are in Gaza now. We need more voices. Their voices cannot be heard since they are, you know, uh, underground, in houses, uh, in captivity. They cannot talk. And somebody needs to raise their voice. And, and we are doing it, but we need the help of the international organizations. D- did you expect Romy to be released last week during the, the temporary truce? Yes, we were sure that Romy will be released on Friday. Um, they, there are only 18 uh, women uh, in in Gaza now, and uh, and and we were we're so sure she will be released on Friday, either Saturday. But that that didn't happen. It was so horrible for us. It was so terrible. Uh, I was awake since 4:30 in the morning, waiting to see if there is a list, when the list is coming out, and no list. It, not just no list. The fighting started again, and. You know, we were so close, so close to have her back, her and all the other women, and and it didn't happen. Has anyone been able to give you any explanation why she wasn't released earlier? No, uh, we have a cabinet meeting uh, the next day. It's you know it's already a Tuesday in Israel, so today we will have a meeting with our cabinet. Uh, the war cabinet, and we expect to get answers regarding the fact that they weren't released yet. Uh, we are we are afraid. We are wor- worried. It's not just there in Gaza. It's young women, young women that in the hands of those terrorists that made all those horrible actions during the 7th of October. We should also point out that, that your daughter is among uh, a number of hostages who are known to have been injured. Your daughter was shot in, in the hand. Hirsch Goldberg, Poland, uh, had part of his left arm blown off. I, I understand some of the hostages who were released last week told you uh, that Romy is still alive, that they had actually seen her, that you got proof of life for the first time. What, what, what did you learn? What did they say? They just said they saw her. She's alive. But they also said that the wound, the shotgun wound, uh, is not treated well and it is neglected and it is uh, not properly treated. So I'm worried. We are worried to all of the pe- people. You know, it's it's not just people that have uh, have been shot. Uh, pe- the people with illnesses inside Gaza which are not treated well. Uh, it's a matter of life and death. I know another reason you do interviews is if by chance Romy is able to to hear you and hear something you say. So is there something you would want her to to hear tonight? Yes, yes. Um, I will say it in English and she understands. And it's, you know, it's not the world. It's not the word. It's, It's what I feel about her. She's a strong woman. She's She's a strong and very beautiful from the inside woman. She knows we believe in her. She knows we love her. I told her on the phone when when I thought she's going to die, I told her, you're not alone, Romy. We are with you. I love you. I miss you. I know you are strong. I know that wherever you you are, you're helping others. I know you help others and make them 
uh, feel a little bit more safe together. So I expect you to, to know that we are coming to take you out. We are doing everything we can to help you and all the other hostages come back home. Mirav, I wish you continued strength and, and in the difficult days ahead, and I hope you have good news soon. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Anderson. Well, next, in the face of new reporting, what a second Trump presidency would look like and allegations it could be a threat to democracy, the former president points the finger elsewhere without evidence. We're keeping him honest. Later, a troubling story about a hero who was saving civilian lives but ended up shot by an Israeli soldier. All There Is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually, with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing. This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. Facing criticisms and concerns about his recent declarations of how he'll run a second term in office and the threat some say it poses to democracy, the former president is responding in a pretty familiar fashion. He's accusing the accuser. Here's how he responded to the idea of President Biden campaigning on that notion. So if Joe Biden wants to make this race a question of which candidate will defend our democracy and protect our freedoms, and I say to Crooked Joe, and he's crooked, the most corrupt president we've ever had, we will win that fight, and we're going to win it very big. Joe Biden is not the defender of American democracy. Joe Biden is the destroyer of American democracy. The former president over the weekend, perhaps it should go without saying, there's no actual evidence that President Biden is a destroyer of American democracy. Also, this is nothing new. Here's his response during the final 2016 presidential debate to Hillary Clinton's allegation that Vladimir Putin wanted him to win. He'd rather have a puppet as president of no the United puppet, States. No puppet. And it's pretty clear. You're the puppet. The man who would become the 45th president of the United States. His former lawyer and fixture, Michael Cohen, calls it deflection by projection. Whatever you want to call it, the former president has done this again and again. The difference this time, though, a Trump presidency is one with no guardrails. And Congresswoman and staunch conservative Liz Cheney this morning issued this warning. Do you believe if Donald Trump were elected next year that he would try to stay in office beyond a second term? I that he would never leave office? There's no question. 
You There's think no you would question. try to stay in power forever? Uh, absolutely. A vote for Donald Trump uh, may mean the last election that you ever get to vote in. And again, I, I don't say that lightly. Um, and it, it, I think is heartbreaking that that's where we are. But people have to recognize that, that a vote for Donald Trump is a vote against the Constitution. Perspective now from CNN Chief Correspondent and Anchor of the Source, Caitlin Collins, also CNN Senior Political Commentator, former Illinois Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger. Congressman, what's your reaction when you see the, the former president trying to flip the script like this? Yeah, I mean, it's his, it's his thing. This is what he does. He'll never admit fault. He always blames everybody else. He's the biggest victim of really any politician ever. He's always the victim of a circumstance, despite being the most powerful man in the world at one point. But uh, look, I don't think anybody seeing him say that actually believes it. Nobody believes it, whether you're left, right, or center. The problem is we've gotten to such a tribal moment that the Republicans, many of them, particularly elected officials, have have given up. They've, they've basically compromised themselves to empower the former president. And now when he says something like that, they won't call him out because now if you turn around and call the former president out, you have to admit your role in what you've done to empower him. And trust me, Anderson, it's much easier to go back to the tribe, have everybody put their arm around you, say you're fine, just stick with us, everything will be okay, than actually looking in the mirror and admitting this. So nobody believes what he's saying. You, you, All but, matters, but there's though, plenty of people who actually do believe what he's saying. I mean, a lot of his supporters believe what he's saying, no? I mean, oh, no. Yeah, yeah, no, they believe what he's saying. But when he says, like, you know, Joe Biden's a bigger threat to democracy, I, I, look, yeah, of course, there are going to be some people that believe it. But the vast majority of people in the job I used to have, for instance, in Congress, they know that's bunk. If you put them on CIA truth serum, they're going to tell you, yeah, Donald Trump is a bigger threat to democracy. Doesn't mean you have to agree with Joe Biden's points and, and his policies, but absolutely. And that's the problem is when leaders don't come out and say that then people that are watching TV or watching the former president, they have no counter that they trust to what the former president's saying. Caitlin, how confident do you think the Trump team is about this kind of redux of the no puppet strategy? It's completely predictable, but it's more sophisticated, if that's really the term to use here, given how much they're making it part of the campaign. This isn't just him spitballing. He's not just saying this, you know, off the cuff, Anderson. It's in his speech from prepared remarks. He's reading off a prompter. They've printed off signs saying Biden attacks democracy in all caps. That's what they're passing out at these rallies. And it is exactly the same playbook that we have seen Trump use time and time again. I mean, remember when he brought the Clinton accusers out before one of the debates after the Access Hollywood tape had come out and his his personal life was the subject of all of the headlines and the front pages and his conduct. Obviously, he was the one who was running for, for president then. And so it's entirely predictable, but they're, they're fashioning it into an actual campaign tool now. And they know, and what was very clear to me this weekend, listening to those speeches from the former president, is they know Biden's chief argument going into 2024 is going to be about Trump being a threat to democracy. He used it the last time. And they're trying to push back on that by basically equating it. And what's striking, striking about it is Trump is literally accused uh, of trying to overturn the election. I mean, he is going to be on trial for that not long from now, potentially. And so I think that is at the heart of this is even though he's trying to accuse Biden of being the person who's anti-democratic, he is literally going to be on trial on charges that he tried to overturn the election. Caitlin, I mean, you've done a lot of reporting on Trump and his supporters. Do you think when he says it, they believe it? Yeah, I, I think they wholeheartedly believe it. And I don't think that 
they draw the distinction. I think some Republican lawmakers certainly are, are disingenuous and they say one thing publicly and they'll privately acknowledge another thing. But I think when you go to these rallies, and I've been to more Trump rallies than you can count on one hand uh, or many hands, that you see it. They really believe it and they really do listen to him. And so when he continues to push this and push this narrative about President Biden, I do think it gets through to them. Congressman, how do you explain that? I mean, we're seeing some Republicans who allegedly don't support the former president from what they've said, start to kind of get wobbly. New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, when asked on a podcast recently, he would support President Biden or the former president if they were the nominees in 2024. He said, quote, I'm a Republican. You got Bill Barr, who eviscerated Trump on Caitlin's program this summer, said the former president shouldn't be anywhere near the Oval Office. He said he still wouldn't rule out voting for him. Does that, I mean, can you reconcile that? Yeah, Anderson, I, I I lost your audio there, but I'll, I'll tell you, like, look, I, I, I did catch the question. Yeah, I mean, the bottom line on this is it doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't make an ounce of sense that a Republican who says that Donald Trump is a big threat, the biggest threat, he's, you know, it was awful in the Oval Office, would then turn around purely based on politics, purely based on a dislike of Joe Biden's policies when there is such a big threat. It makes no sense to me except to say that, look, it's hard. If you would say, I'm not going to support former President Trump against Joe Biden, you're going to lose your base. People are going to be upset at you. But again, that's what leadership is. And just quickly on this, this whole like Donald Trump kind of, you know, switching the script. Keep in mind, he constantly says Joe Biden is weak on China. And I don't agree with everything Joe Biden does on China. But I sat in an Oval Office meeting where President Trump begged us begged us to allow China's ZTE to continue to operate in the United States because we were trying to ban it through the National Defense Authorization Act because he made a personal plea or a personal promise to, to Xi Jinping. And that's what he does. It's just whatever he feels like saying, he'll say, but he is the direct opposite usually of what he says. Okay, what do you think the biggest difference would be between a Trump first term and a possible second term? The one main thing that sticks out when I when I talk to people who worked for Trump in the White House the last time around is anytime he wanted to do it was it was all the art of how to deal with him, how to negotiate with him, with him, how to navigate him, that even his own staff, where they were trying to figure out how to talk him out of things that he wanted to do. And often one of their most successful arguments would be, if you do this, it's going to hurt you with voters. It's going to hurt your chances at reelection. And it was effective. It was one of the only ones that and him getting bad press. And so that would be completely gone. And I think he has this idea of just the people that he hired himself working against him, that the people he would hire this time, he would ensure that they would be people who would not do that, who would, you know, for what Bill Barr has said that he, you know, won't rule out whether or not he'd vote for Trump. He was certainly someone who blocked a lot of the things that Trump tried to do because he thought that they were illegal or just wrong. Those kinds of people wouldn't be there. It would be the the Cash Patels, the Rick Grinnells, the other officials who he did install into top positions who could be in even more senior roles that do work to carry out what not only what he wants, but also what they themselves want. And I think that would be what would be so remarkably different is that and that he doesn't really have anything to fear because he, he's it would be his last term being in office. You know, Congressman, earlier, I mean, a year ago, two years ago, people would say, oh, well, you know, who's he going to get to work for him in a second administration? Right. I think we're going to see there's enough people out there who are happy to subvert democracy or be on the, you know, the winning side, no matter what the effect on the country is. 
Well, look no further than Jeffrey Clark at the Department of Justice, you know, basically wanting to be attorney general. This is before it became cool to be against the Constitution and the GOP. But he basically was telling Donald Trump, I will do whatever you want. This is around the time that Donald Trump was wanting the Department of Justice to think about this, to say, just say the election was corrupt. We don't need you to do anything else. Just say it was corrupt and then leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. What he's saying, and it's what he continues to do, is just put a little stamp of doubt, like an official stamp of doubt, and then we will exploit that doubt to actually you know, benefit in the minds of the American people. Look, I guarantee you, Donald Trump can easily find 10 people, and he can even pick, pick the best of the 10 that would easily say, Mr. President, I will do whatever you want regardless of what the Constitution says. Those people are out there. And guess what, Anderson? Those people are actually pretty smart. That's what, I'm, that's what I worry about, too. Congressman Kinzinger, thanks, Caitlin. We'll see you at the top of the hour for The Source. A program note tomorrow night, our special guest will be uh, former Wyoming Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney, 8 Eastern time right here on CNN. Just ahead tonight, why Israel initially failed to investigate the killing by a soldier of an Israeli civilian turned hero during a deadly attack by Hamas. And what Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu meant when he said, quote, that's life. When two Palestinian gunmen opened fire at a bus stop in Jerusalem last week in a terror attack, an Israeli civilian, a lawyer, Yuval Kasselman, acted heroically to stop them, running toward the attackers, firing his weapon at them. Three Israelis were killed by the Hamas gunmen, seven injured. Hamas claimed credit for the attack. Despite giving every indication he was not a terrorist, including kneeling with his hands up and opening his jacket to show he had no suicide vest, Castleman was shot during the attack by an Israeli soldier. Adding to the controversy, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's initial comments when asked about the mistaken shooting and civilians carrying guns said, quote, that's life. Alex Marquardt has more on a belated investigation and tonight an arrest. And we warn you, what you're about to see is disturbing. Video posted online shows Yuval Castleman, a former Israeli police officer, with his hands in the air. Then he's shot at twice. Then twice more. On the ground, his shirt bloodied and clearly in pain. He later died of his wounds. Castleman had sprung into action when this light-colored car pulled up on Thursday at a Jerusalem bus stop. Two Hamas gunmen jump out and open fire on the crowd and try to run away. Three are killed. As the terrorists try to drive away, Castleman runs across the road and opens fire with his pistol to help take down the attackers. But an army reservist here also opens fire on Castleman. Two soldiers from this red car run out with their weapons. Castleman apparently trying to show he's not an attacker. He has his hands in the air and his jacket open, but he appears to have been killed by the reservist, a fellow Israeli. In Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's first comments about Castleman's death, he said that's life when civilians carry guns, which he supports. That comment angering many Israelis, Netanyahu later called Castleman's actions supreme bravery. Friends and family gathered Monday night for Shiva, the Jewish mourning period, at the home of Castleman's father. His sister Noga and best friend Guy Iskovich showed me a photo album of Castleman's life. Iskovich is also a former police officer and says they're outraged that Castleman was shot with his hands up. Yuval was not gunned down, Yuval was murdered. So what is the hardest part of all this for you? I lost my brother because of a stupid mistake. It, it was a stupid mistake. It should never have happened. 
and if I, I know that if they were following the same orders that I was given and that they were given, my friend will still be alive. Castleman's father, Moshe, sits low on the floor as is custom, as guests pay their respects. Moshe calls his son a hero and wants an investigation of what happened. All his life, Yuval was that kind of person, Moshe said. That's how he behaved. Despite knowing that he was taking a risk and endangering his life, he didn't hesitate. And Alex Markard joins us now from Tel Aviv. What more can you tell us about the person who's been arrested? Well, this reservist, uh, he has been detained. He's being investigated by the military police. He has been identified, Anderson, by the Israeli press. His name is Aviad Frija. Um, the, the IDF has cautioned that there wouldn't be an indictment until this investigation is over. They have underscored what they call a clear moral rule in the IDF, that when someone puts their hands up, that you don't shoot. Now, Anderson, we have seen a steady stream of high-profile politicians going to sit shiva with the family, President Isaac Herzog uh, of Israel, the war minister, uh, Benny Gantz. While we were there earlier tonight, we saw a senior member of the uh, Likud party, which is Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, party. This is a, a story that has really touched this country profoundly, Anderson, and it's also playing into this debate over gun control. It's similar to the, the debate that we have in the U.S., uh, over the theory of a good guy with a gun. Here was a good guy with a gun who was shot and killed trying to intervene in a terrorist attack. Anderson. Mm. Alex Marquardt, thanks very much. Coming up, a former Harvard scholar who specializes in online disinformation claims a school forced her out after Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg and his wife gifted Harvard hundreds of millions of dollars. Harvard denies the allegation. Donny O'Sullivan has the story next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. When the former president who tried to overturn an election calls the man who legally succeeded him a threat to democracy, it should be obvious facts are at a premium in the 2024 presidential race. That may be one reason why a new allegation from a former Harvard scholar who specializes in disinformation about the alleged influence of Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg and his wife on her work is raising concerns. Donio Sullivan tonight has details. This was going to be a knockdown drag out fight for my academic freedom. For years, Dr. Joan Donovan has been widely considered one of the top experts on social media disinformation. She wrote dozens of papers, authored a book about extremism online, even testified before Congress. Misinformation is a threat to national security. She led a special program at Harvard called the Technology and Social Change Research Project. Until... She says she was forced out. Harvard tried to destroy my career. I believe it was just the decision of the dean to terminate me because I was making trouble for 
the donors. The donors she's referring to are Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg and his wife Priscilla Chan, who both attended Harvard. They gave a $500 million donation in 2021. But the trouble is, part of Donovan's research involves holding big tech companies, like the company Zuckerberg founded Meta, which includes Facebook, accountable for everything from disinformation to teen suicides to war propaganda. In 2021, when a Facebook whistleblower leaked thousands of internal company documents, Donovan began building a database at Harvard to make all the documents publicly available. I believe these were the most important documents in internet history. I saw these Facebook papers as evidence that Facebook knew the harms it was causing and did nothing about it, akin to the way in which tobacco companies tried to hide research about lung cancer. After that, she believes Meta began turning up the pressure on Harvard. I don't think I would have been in the position that I'm in right now if I had not uh, proceeded with this project. Donovan, with help from a group called Whistleblower Aid, sent this complaint to Harvard, the U.S. Secretary of Education, and the Massachusetts Attorney General, alleging Harvard officials began adopting Meta's language and questioned Dr. Donovan's research methodologies, specifically with respect to Facebook. Leadership was taking cues from Meta and acting on behalf of Meta's best interests, and compared Meta's behavior to big tobacco, oil and gas, and big pharma, each of which manipulated institutions into producing research products that supported their respective industries. This field is being run by tech oligarchs who believe that academic research should be a wing of their PR. Meta has long pushed back against research that blames the company for harming society, but the company did not comment for this story. Harvard told CNN in a statement, allegations of unfair treatment and donor interference are false. The narrative is full of inaccuracies and baseless insinuations, particularly the suggestion that Harvard Kennedy School allowed Facebook to dictate its approach to research. The spokesperson said the Facebook leaked document project ended up going ahead and the university's work on online disinformation continues. But Donovan says Harvard has damaged its credibility. I mean, it's gutting. Here I am at Harvard believing that they would protect the sanctity of the truth and that they were understanding that this work was going to ruffle some feathers. But what I didn't imagine was that I would need protection from Harvard itself. And Daniel O'Sullivan joins us now. What is the status of the doctor's research? Yeah, so Dr. Donovan uh, now um, is, is working at Boston University, but a big part of her problem is a lot of the research she did at Harvard, it's kind of locked in at Harvard and a lot yeah. of that data. Um, as you heard in that piece, Meta, which has a very substantial communications department, uh, had no comment <laughs> on this story today, which is quite unusual for a company that likes to defend itself. The Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, however, which gave half a billion dollars to Harvard, uh, just in the past few hours put out a new statement that said uh, that they had no involvement in her Dr. Dunvin's departure from Harvard and was unaware of that development before public reporting on it. Um, look, Harvard is strongly, strongly denying this. I will say from speaking to other researchers in this uh, in this space, uh, this is a kind of... Fem they weren't entirely surprised when they heard uh, this about Dr. Donovan. And just taking a step back further from this, this is all coming as we're going to 2024. 
disinformation researchers, people who are calling out this sort of stuff, how it's happening on social media, where it's coming from, how it's affecting people, they're being attacked on all sides because you have the Republicans and the House of Representatives who are subpoenaing them. They're getting sued left, right and centre. There really is an attack on academic freedom generally uh, in this country, uh, in this space, which is really a crucial space, particularly uh, going to 2024. Donnie Sullivan, thanks for Appreciate it. Up next, in a word, Harry Enten joins me to reveal Oxford's 2023 Word of the Year. Hmm. The publisher of the Oxford English Dictionary has announced its pick for the 2023 Word of the Year. Our resident <laughs> expert, Harry Enten, joins us with details. So, so, so do you have a guess? Of what the word of the year is? I, well, I don't even, how would I guess what the word of the year is? I thought maybe you did so much. Michigas. Michigas. No, that would have been my word of the year. No, the word of the year was Riz. R-I-Z-Z. Do you, <laughs> do you have any idea what this word uh, may actually mean? I do not. Uh, I have been told that it is a noun or a verb. It can be either way. And it basically yeah. is like the charisma to attract somebody. So this is a word, obviously, I'm very oh, familiar with. Oh, yeah, with. I just saw this online yesterday. Yes. Maybe that's why I saw it, because, yes. Okay. See, so you, you were it's riz. the charisma to attract somebody. Yeah, it's like the charisma. So to, you've got riz, I've clearly. Got, you've got a lot of riz. Correct. You've and got Tom, buckets of riz. Right, and Tom Holland... Uh -huh. Didn't have Riz. This is one of the reasons it became the big thing. Like he said, oh, I didn't have a lot of Riz. And, you know, I played the long game to get Zendaya. And this is how this became sort of the word of the year, Riz. Oh, okay. okay. Um, hmm. Now, I do uh, have some other questions for you. Do you know, happen to know any of the finalists' words? How would I, how would I, if I didn't know Riz, how would I know what any Well, of the you did know Riz. You did see uh, it, right? Okay. If Michigas wasn't, how about Shonda? Shonda, yes, Shonda. What a Shonda. It would be such a Shonda if you yes. did not know these words. Well, uh, so what were some of the finalists? One of the, some of the finalists, okay. One of them is a situationship. I, that I have not heard. I have not heard that either. So that's like, a, it's not a relationship, it's just a situationship? It's like, you're not sure where it's going, you know, you're kind of sure. going out with somebody, okay. you know, you're not really sure where it's heading. I should point out that- It's like a little Netflix and chill situationship. Yeah, that's exactly okay. right. right. A little, something that I used to be familiar with. Now I'm Swifty must, re uh, uh, that's clearly not Swifty Lazar, we're talking about Taylor Swift. That is correct. Yes. It, it's a massive fan of Taylor Swift. And, right. and I know, of course, you're a massive fan of Taylor. Swift, right? It, uh, yeah, of course. Of course. Uh, yeah. I, I am. I actually do. I think she's great. She actually. is great. She is great. I should just also note on the short list, I feel like we're just making up words sometimes. Uh -huh. So a beige flag instead of like a red flag, it's just like. What? A beige that flag. That I've never heard. I've never is heard. Is that really a thing? That's Has a anyone ever, anyone else here heard of that? I, no, no, no. But Kevin, the, you're very in tune with the kids, no? No. I, the kids, I don't know. I'm out to lunch. I'm a millennial, not a Gen Z. All right, I'm going to put a beige flag on that one. Harry Enten, Thank thanks you. very much. Coming up next, who has qualified for Wednesday night's Republican presidential debate? There won't be as many candidates as last month's showdown. I'll tell you who's out. The Republican National Committee has just announced that only four candidates will take part in Wednesday night's fourth GOP presidential debate in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, Vivek Ramaswamy, and Chris Christie. Former president is not expected to attend. Asa Hutchinson didn't make the cut due to stricter polling and fundraising rules. And the rest have suspended their campaigns after not getting traction, including North Dakota Republican Governor Doug Burgum, who announced today that he is out. We'll have post-debate coverage Wednesday night. Hope you join us. The news continues. The Source with Caitlin Collins starts now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, 
we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.